It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to 32 Fans Movies, where we discuss all things movies, past, present, and occasionally future. My name is Sammy Chester. And I'm Will Simon. Today we're going to be talking about good movies, bad movies, short movies, long movies, tall movies, fat movies, weak movies, strong movies. And we're joined by someone who, in fairness, I don't think we can be calling a guest at this point. We'll have to think of a better name, but uh, we have Av Sinensky with us. Av, I think it's worth recounting the major steps that this podcast took in the last month because, you know, we've really gone, I think, from a sideshow attraction to the real deal. So join me for a second. In the last month, we released the first episode of our eight-month sports odyssey, joined by a professional movie critic on, obviously, soccer and hockey. We released our first special episode hosted by Av. We launched our own podcast channel. We launched a Twitter handle led by Av. I launched a Twitter account, not created by Av, but pretty much. And inspired by this podcast, I, your host, Sammy Chester, attended my first movie festival, which we'll get into in a minute. So I think you could say July is almost the before and after for 32 Fans Movie. I'm surprised Av hasn't suggested a better name for us at this point. Maybe we can think of a better name for this podcast by the end of the show. I can definitely think of a worse name. <laughs> okay, well, that's a... Shout of support for 32 Fans Movies. As I mentioned, I was at a film festival. It's called the Jerusalem Film Festival. It happens every summer in Jerusalem. Not exactly where I live, but close enough. I've heard of it for years. It's, Will, you might have a better idea on this. I think you've probably been to the most film festivals of all of us, right? Meaning more than zero. I think the number is at two right now, so probably. Okay, so over 100% more than the rest of us. Yes, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Jerusalem Film Festival. I would put it at maybe like a C plus level, meaning I think, you know, you have your Sundance, Toronto, and obviously Cannes are maybe like A level. And then B level are a bunch more that drive the industry in certain ways. And then Jerusalem had a lot of prestige movies. Tarantino came a few years ago as a special guest, not the visit when he met his Israeli wife, but still. But Jerusalem, I don't think it drives the industry in any way, but... It gets enough kind of A-list talent and A-list movies that it, I would guess it's considered important enough. I think what it does is it feeds off of Khan a lot. It takes a lot of the Khan movies and uh, recycles them. I, I don't know what your impression is of the festivals you have been to in terms of where they rank. 
but uh, I would push Jerusalem in the in the C tier, but still a very very solid tier. Yeah, I feel like it's probably higher than the ones that I've gone to, just because I really have just gone to the ones that are close by, and you know they don't really attract a whole lot of big names. Yeah, I actually went last week. The Jerusalem Film Festival was a week long. I went to my local town in northern Israel, which had a one night film festival. And to put things into context, my local town, I would call like a D minus. The only movies they were able to screen were a few minor European documentaries. So I don't know how the licensing works, but I assume they can't just take off French Netflix and screen those. There's a whole production line. And suffice to say, Jerusalem had some heavy hitter movies, which I'd love to share with you guys briefly. I'd love Um, to hear about it. Okay, I'm going to just run down, I think I saw 16 movies in six days. I want to talk about a few of them because these are all movies I saw in the last month of July, but I'll quickly share some of the titles. So if listeners are interested, they can hit me up later. Some of the movies I saw include Parasite, Wild Rose, Portrait of a Woman on Fire, Blind Spot. Almost all of those so far, except for Wild Rose, are foreign movies. I also saw Their Farewell, which is an American movie. I saw Queen of Hearts, The Day Shall Come, an American movie. Nonfiction, Genesis, a Canadian movie, so almost. Between Two Waters, The Swallows of Kabul, etc., etc. I saw The Pain and Glory, which is a movie that's been getting some attention because it's uh, by the famous Spanish director Pedro Aldemovar and has Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz. Uh, there's a few more. I won't get into all of them. I'll just discuss a bit at the top. But I think the most important thing I can say is that Will and Av, you remember last month on the pod, we discussed what are your favorite movies six months in and how does 2019 look for movies? And if I recall, Av, you were standing on the Avengers Endgame and Will, I think you said your number one so far was Climax. Is that right? Yes. Uh, But both you guys said that you did hope to displace your number one movies by the end of the year. I didn't get a chance to go into my number one movie last month. It was Transit, a transit movie that I believe Av has now seen. Suffice to say, of my top 10, six of them have been replaced, thanks to the movie that's at the festival and, and otherwise. And my number one movie, which was Transit, has now fallen two places. So I think July has transformed this year, as far as I'm concerned, into a great year for movies. I went in with doubts as to where things were, and then this month ended, sort of like our podcast, really on a high. I don't know what your guys' impression is. Would you say in the last month, this year has been transformed for you? Uh, Not for me personally, but I think that's just because I haven't gotten the chance to go to the film festival that that you went to. Because I think a lot of the stuff you saw, like Parasite, The Farewell, that stuff I'm really looking forward to and we'll probably see in the next few months. And uh, I imagine it'll be pretty high for me as well. Yeah, one of the fun things of a festival is you see movies which... I would say half tend to be foreign, but you see movies which have not yet had full release in theaters. So Parasite, which we'll get into in a moment, is an incredible movie that there's not a single listener to this podcast, no matter what you're into, that will not enjoy and be amazed by. It's coming out in October in the US. Uh, How about you? Is Avengers Endgame still holding steady in number one or has it been displaced? Bad news for the Marvel fans. Avengers Endgame has been displaced. As soon as I saw the aforementioned transit that you previously had as your number one, upon seeing it, I immediately moved it to the top of my list for the year. It was an absolutely gorgeous, moving, emotional, mesmerizing movie that I really recommend that everyone should see. It's in German, which is going to be tough for some people. I know not everyone loves the foreign films and the subtitles, but it's, it's really well worth it. 
I would say at this film festival, I saw so many foreign movies that with one exception, it was a problem. But by the end of the week, I felt I'd done more reading than watching almost. So yeah, I agree. I think there's a nice balance. I'm always happy to read a bit of subtitles, but if you watch 10 movies in a row and you're reading constantly, it can get a bit much. Okay, so Av, you're saying transit already knocked into one, but more importantly, Av, would you agree with me? Did the last month do something that renewed your confidence in 2019 at the movies? I think it was definitely a step up. I would say I saw, I think probably like two or three, if not four that are now in like my top 10 or 12, uh, a couple others probably in my top 20. I think it definitely knocked up the, this year from where it was. So that's a hopeful sign. And obviously, you know, some of the bigger releases are going to start coming out in the fall and the winter, and that will hopefully make the year round out nicely. But you know, I still think we're going to look back at the first half of this year as being on the weaker side for a first half. But thankfully, things are starting to pick up. And I think there's, you know, going to be a bunch more movies that we're going to be excited to see coming up. Yeah, to me, maybe let's wait to talk about this later in the year, as you said. But this year already, I think it's good, but I think it's very interesting. And I think we're going to look back in 2019 as a transition year driven by Marvel and everything else and some of the movies that uh, Will has seen a bunch of. I won't say anything more about the film festival. I think the, th the three of us discussed offline that we'd love to do a whole digest of film festivals in general sometime in the future, where after each of us has maybe been to another one, then we'll get together and talk about you know tips and tricks for listeners curious about going to any of them. Uh, I think they're really fun. I think, again, they transform your experience with film. And the last thing I'll simply say is I famously don't ever see movies in theaters. And to see almost 16 movies in a theater with other people was hugely different for me. I wasn't used to watching a movie where I'm not sitting at home in bed on my computer, on a bus, on my cell phone, etc. So I felt very much like uh, I was inspired by Will and Nav. And uh, it, was, it was a fun experience. Uh, Maybe but, the reason that so many of the movies made your top 10 is because movies are inherently better when you're watching <laughs> on your phone. That could be true. Uh, I will say there were definitely moments when having people around was a little bit annoying. I will say French Netflix sometimes gives you that experience of watching with other people because when your screener is holding a camera up and therefore showing you the movie, you get to hear the laughs in the theater from the other people there. Uh -oh. We'll maybe get into that with some movies I saw in French shows. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, you know, some way, you know, the experience of going to the theater is better for no reason other than you just watch the movie in one straight continuous shot, which is just never going to be the way you watch it if you're watching it on a phone or even on your couch. You're going you're gonna to pause, you're going to do something in the middle, you're going to go to the bathroom. That's a way we watch a lot of movies and you can still enjoy a movie that way. You can really love a movie that way, but it's not the same experience as being in a theater and just sitting and just totally sinking into a movie for two hours, two and a half hours, whatever it is. And that's all you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really important. One of the movies I saw at the festival, it's gotten some critical buzz. It'll be hitting the US, I'm sure, later this year. It's called Nonfiction. I would say it's sort of like a super French movie, meaning very talkative, people eating a lot of nice food, drinking a lot of wine and talking about their sexual adventures. Uh, it's also sort of a Woody Allen light, meaning it's like a Woody Allen talkie movie from the 70s without the same level of humor. But its entire theme is how we consume media today in the digital age. So it talks about how we read books off phones and how we watch movies. Good movie, I wouldn't say great movie, but I'm not going to get into that. What I want to talk about is to give a little bit more shine to Parasite. I saw Parasite on the opening night of the festival, so they put it on a massive outdoor screen next to the ancient walls of uh, Jerusalem which anyone who knows what that is, it's very, very special. It's where Madonna has performed in the past. It's an incredible place to see a movie. You hear the traffic behind you, you're surrounded by people, you're outside. 
And Parasite is so good. It is a masterwork. It's by a Korean director that has made a few movies in English and he has a few movies in Korean. I think Will Yu had said you've seen a bunch of them and his Korean movies you think are a little bit better than his English ones. The director's name is Bong yeah. Joon-ho. Yeah, The Host especially is uh, probably his most acclaimed movie and I, I recommend that one to anyone as well. I saw The Host because I was so amazed by Parasite. Parasite is 100 times better than The Host. I mean, Will, you should be super excited. This is a movie, it doesn't matter how much your expectations are going in, it will still be blown away. It's easily the most impressive movie I've seen in the last few years. I will have to contradict that idiot host we had last month who insisted that the best movie and your favorite movie are not the same thing, myself, because I will say Parasite is the most impressive movie of the year. I loved it. It is not my number one because that's a different movie. So I'm willing to concede a bit to you, Will, from uh, last month. I can't wait to discuss Parasite with you and Av. It's coming to theaters again in mid-October in the U.S. Because Bong Joon-ho has had a number of big English movies, he did Onja, which came out a few years ago, last year, I believe. It was in English with a bunch of stars. And he did Snowpiercer with Chris Evans, obviously. Yeah, Chris Evans told us. Yeah, so he's enough of a global commodity. And this movie, wow. Let's wait to discuss it in October, though, because it deserves full attention and we're not going to give it now. My favorite movie of the year, which I also saw at the festival, it was one of the rare English language movies, though frankly it was the movie I wish there had been subtitles for because the movie's essentially in Scottish English, so I couldn't understand everything all the time and maybe Will will get me on that. But my number one movie of the year is Wild Rose. The simple way to describe Wild Rose is that I think it's a much better take of A Star is Born, the Lady Gaga movie from last year. But a better way to describe it is it's a country song set to a movie screen. You know, if you think of sort of classic country songs and the way they tell a story of a hero and a protagonist and their ups and downs, that is Wild Rose. The reason I love this so much, and uh, I know, Will, you saw it as well, is I was so emotionally affected. And I can't even exactly put into words why I was. I think it has a little bit to do with some stuff going on in my personal life. I think it has a little bit to do with what, Will, you had said, which is seeing a movie in theaters. The theater was packed. Everyone was laughing and crying. And you could feel a pin drop at many moments. It got to me emotionally in a way that nothing else did. And yes, it's an uplifting movie. It's a positive movie. The acting is incredible. Jesse Buckley is in the lead. And... People are saying, like, she is going to be A-list Hollywood thanks to this movie pretty soon. Will, I'm, I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts because, as I said, this is my number one. I was blown away. I think it's really special. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be a, a big downer here. Uh, I wasn't the biggest fan of it. I did think the acting and everything was was great. All the music was really well done, I thought. Just from a writing perspective, though, I thought it was pretty saccharine. It didn't resonate with me very much emotionally, and that could really be a big uh, personal preference thing. But yeah, I, I also couldn't really connect with the main character. I thought she was very unlikable. A lot of the character decisions weren't really well fleshed out. Felt like it was trying too hard to appeal emotionally. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, look, it definitely works emotionally. Um, I, I will say in contrast to A Star is Born, and uh, of when you see the movie, I'd love to get your take because... I recall you had said how the Lady Gaga song from A Star Is Born last year was like the moment on screen in 2018. I, there's two criticisms I would have of, of Wild Rose. One is that it's a little formulaic. Will, I agree with you on that. And two, it doesn't have, A Star Is Born has a little bit more like wow 
song moments. You know, I think the songs are more memorable in A Star is Born, which you could say is arguably the most important thing in a movie about a singer. But Wild Rose feels so authentic. It feels that you really see how this is not a good person, even though the lead I find so charming. So I'm surprised at what you're saying, Will. This, she's not a good person. She consistently makes the wrong decisions and selfish decisions. But she has a genius. She has a talent. And some of the people in the movie remark on that. You know, it's like, it's like the classic movie Amadeus about Mozart, which depicts him as a very selfish, immature, frankly bad person. But he has this once in a thousand years musical talent that changes the world. And, you know, not to say the country singer in Wild Rose is Mozart, but there was that driving clash there of genius versus personal responsibility, which uh, doesn't speak to me because uh, I am not a genius necessarily in anything in my life, but I was very impressed by it. Let me throw a few other quick movies because again, some of these are coming out later in the year and, and they're really special. There's another movie I saw, it's a French movie, it's a period piece, it's called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It is beautifully shot. It's a movie basically about a woman in I guess, what is it, the 18th century who's painting another woman. There's almost no men in the movie. It's been described as the female gaze movie which means it's directed by a woman, it stars all women. It's about, literally the thought of the movie is a woman has to look at another woman in order to paint her and the subject of the painting doesn't want to be painted. So they're constantly looking at each other. So they're constantly gazing at each other, but obviously female gaze means a lot more than that. As I said, there are so many beautiful scenes which you would expect in a movie that is very heavy on tone and a movie about painting. So the way they frame shots is very important. There's one in particular, a scene where a side character has to have an abortion, and it's absolutely beautiful. Um, I won't go into more than that. It's not spoiling the scene whatsoever, but just simply to say the abortion scene, I thought it's the most intense, searing cinematic moment of the year. I know this movie is going to come out at some point, probably in limited release. It is French. It is a period piece. My mom loves period pieces, and there's a certain type of person who loves reading Jane Eyre type books, loves any movie that has accents and the people are wearing those, you know, corsets and whatnot. I would not limit this movie only to period piece fans. I think anyone who appreciates a great movie, just give yourself to a portrait of a lady on fire. The other movie I'll quickly jump on is called Blind Spot. This one's going to be very tough to see because it's an art house Norwegian movie that came out in very limited release, even in, you know, art house scenes. The thing to know about Blind Spot is it's a single take film. Now, Will and Otter, remember we discussed a Chinese movie that came out earlier this year, which has this last half of the movie as a single take? Uh, yeah, Long Day's Journey into Night. Yeah, and that was sort of the most impressive part of that film, right? Meaning the movie was a little bit confusing, but that whole one single take at the end, you're like, wow. Yeah, for sure. I don't know why, but single take, I feel is sort of, it's somewhat of a gimmick to put it into a movie, but it done well it can feel like you're watching a live theater, but with all the elements you're allowed to do in a movie instead. I'm not quite sure why single take is so celebrated and why it can work so well. What I will say about Blind Spot is it is unforgiving, meaning you watch characters walking from place to place. There are three scenes or maybe two scenes where people are driving through traffic in a very important way from place to place. And you're with them the entire way and I actually saw some reviews and they were saying the gimmick in some ways hurts the movie because you just want to get to the drama and there's no editing and cutting really in Blind Spot. You're just there for the ride. What I loved about it is I think it captures something about childhood and something without spoiling anything about trauma, about loss and pain, which is in those in-between moments. It's when you're sitting in the ambulance on the way from your home to the hospital 
and the way you're breathing and the way you're looking at the people next to you that captures something so profound. And that's where this movie works. So I love those moments that most movies don't show. I think if too many movies came out that were all single take, Blind Spot would lose some of its power. But because it's one of the few movies, it's a hundred minute movie, all shot with no breaks. So again, just appreciate that. That means if they messed up in the 90th minute, they had to go back and shoot the entire movie over again. And I don't know how many times they shot the movie over and over and over, but I imagine it was a, sort of a pretty special movie to film. Do you guys particularly enjoy single take when they do that in films? Yeah, so I mean, I think when done well, and I think they're usually not in the types of movies that do it for, you know, 30 minutes, but, you know, you do a five or six minute long take. I think it just, it could have the impact of just making you feel like you're in the scene a lot more and it becomes a lot more immersive because even if you think you're not noticing the cuts, your brain kind of does and somehow just makes you more aware of the fact that you're watching a movie as opposed to watching human beings that are in a room with you. I think, you know, when it's done well, it could really have that effect. It just, it kind of just removes the fourth wall for a few moments. When it gets to be done, you know, we're going to do the entire movie in a long take. I think that that could kind of wear off. And as you said, like, you kind of lose some of the good quality of a movie because you're just seeing the person walk across the street to a store when a normal movie would just have a cut there and he's in the store now. You know, it's funny you bring it up because like one of my big pet peeves from recent Oscar history was Birdman defeating Boyhood in 2014. It drove me crazy because one of the main criticisms of Boyhood was that it was a gimmick, that it wasn't really that good of a story or that good of a movie. They just did this thing where they filmed it over a long period of time with the same people and, it was, and everyone thought, like, oh, wow, that's really cool and clever and therefore it's so good. Whereas Birdman was this amazing movie. And I happen to have thought it was a good movie. But Birdman also had a gimmick of the whole movie was shot in a single shot, except it wasn't even shot as a single shot. It was just made with camera magic to look like it was shot as a single shot. It was a regular movie. So and that drives me crazy to this day that it, it was given so much credit for creating the feeling of a single shot when they didn't even do that. I think Birdman beating out Whiplash was, was the real uh, tragedy there for me. I think single take shots scenes, I think they're especially effective when done uh, for action scenes, because a lot of the time, like quick cuts will really obscure what's actually going on in, in a fight scene. And a lot of that is just due to the fact that directors may not know how to choreograph the fight scenes as well. So they, you know, just cut around it to make it look like things are happening more than they actually are. A big example of this is the hallway fight scene from Old Boy, which is my number two favorite movie of all time. Um, if you haven't seen that, you know, go check that out. It's just an incredible single take scene. This guy finding a bunch of people in a hallway. And yeah, it, it makes like sense real. because action scenes are so choreographed that if you can get a very well choreographed one shot action scene, it mm -hmm. lifts it up in a way that otherwise you feel a little cheated by a ton of cuts in an action movie. I hope we don't have this gimmick too much of an entire movie in a single take, but to see it done and to be done in a very modest but powerful movie like Blind Spot is at the same time very special. Do whatever you can to see it, you know, this year. I think it's special. And I think that experience is special. And I think what they captured, and you know, it's from some first time or very young filmmaker in Norway. It's not, uh, you know, it's not a big time movie coming out certainly of Hollywood. I was just gonna say, if you are inclined to like that type of movie, the one shot movie, um, there was a movie from, I think two years ago or three years ago called Victoria, another German movie that was fantastic. And it's just one continuous shot beginning to end. I think it's like a 90 or a hundred minute movie. It was really great. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, after seeing a movie, I go read what sort of some of the, the reviewers have said, and there aren't that many reviewers for Blind Spot because again, it's only been shown in a few festivals, but every single one refers to uh, the Victoria movie that you mentioned 
as sort of its predecessor and probably an inspiration in some sense. The last two movies I'll briefly refer to, one just because of what I've mentioned, is a Spanish movie that's called Between Two Waters. I also saw it at the festival. And the reason I mentioned it is because it also has sort of a gimmick. It's been described as boyhood in a sense, but it takes it up a notch because what happened in this movie is that the director who's from that area of Spain, he made a movie 12 years ago about a character and now, or maybe 15 years ago, and now he returns 15 years later to make a very, very different movie about the same character, except what Between Two Waters does is he filmed these two brothers and I think 80% or 90% of the movie is him just filming them in their daily lives. They happen to have incredibly dramatic, weird daily lives. And then he only recreated a few scenes for added dramatic effect. So for instance, you watch the main character's wife give birth to their third child. And my wife, who works in hospitals and is a nurse and you know works with a lot of maternity cases, I said to her, I said, what's going on? Like, is this recreated? Is someone about to die? And my wife's like, no, that's what an actual birth looks like. And I was floored because I don't have any children and I've never been in a birthing room. And, you know, maybe Av or possibly Will can uh, elaborate on that. Yeah, it's it's disgusting. It was absolutely out of control. I was like, what's going on? But anyways, Between Two Waters, it's very artistic. It's like super long. I saw it way too late at night and half the people left because the movie started at 11 and I think it went to almost 2 a.m. So it can be a difficult time to watch it. It's very special in what it does. It's about the relationship of two poor brothers, and it's incredibly odd and special, I think, in what the director managed to capture. Meaning one of the brothers is in prison, one of them is in the Navy, and the scenes showing them in prison in the Navy are not recreated for dramatic effect. It's essentially a documentary in that sense, and yet he then pushes it into this drama feature film fictional space as well. So it does something special, does something unique. I kind of like that we have these, you know, you could call them gimmick approaches just to sort of mix up the traditional way of seeing a movie. That was my festival experience. Very, very worthwhile. I do think in something I'll reflect on for months and you know possibly years to come, I think it sort of turned a corner for me and how I appreciate movies. I won't touch on any more unless they come up that you guys mentioned. But yeah, Will, what have you been watching in July? What do you like? What do you tell people they should absolutely avoid? What's been going on in Virginia? Uh, well, not too much, honestly. I haven't seen as many new releases as I usually do this month, mainly just because I've been on vacation and uh, things have been pretty busy at work. But I do have a new number one favorite movie of 2019 and number one least favorite movie of 2019. The Art of Self-Defense is incredible. It's a movie about Jesse Eisenberg playing the same sort of character he always plays, where he's this, you know, really awkward, meek guy. But in this, he's actually really likable. He is attacked by a group of bikers and decides to start taking karate to defend himself. It's a very, very dark comedy that goes in like some really wild directions I was not expecting. And overall, it's just the funniest movie I've seen this year. Is it better than the YouTube series about the Karate Kid 20 years later? Uh, Definitely. Have you seen that series? Yeah, Cobra Kai. Yeah, Cobra Kai is awesome, right? Yeah, Cobra Kai is really good. Uh, I think they tackle a lot lot of the same themes, actually. Interesting. But you're saying it's superior to Cobra Kai? I would say so, yes. Okay. Uh, Do you watch Cobra Kai? I do not, but I did see Art of Self-Defense, and while I'm not as quite as high on it as Will, I agree it's it's really good, and you know I think almost everyone would enjoy it. I thought this had like two or three of the best jokes of the year, that I just like I keep just thinking up in my head and just giggling. It's just, it's a really good movie. Jesse Eisenberg is really good in it. Jesse Eisenberg will touch on this. I find he's 
so definitively himself and it probably hurts him because I feel like for casting, like I remember when he was in his first Woody Allen movie and I was like, this guy was created to be Woody Allen character in a Woody Allen movie. Yeah, uh, definitely. He's so distinctly himself and I find him a good actor, but I would love to see him do something different. I think whatever he's doing is working for him. If I, if I had yeah, but, but he's always the Mark Zuckerberg as, you know, the, the Woody Allen guy. He's yeah, always he did play, a, he played Lex Luthor, didn't he? Yes. Oh, yeah. that's true. That, was, that went pretty well, I think. He does a very Mark Zuckerberg, Woody Allen, I feel like Lex Luthor. You know? He's like, again, the nervous, anxious, stuttering, you know, give me the evil alien goo type guy. Obviously, you know, no one likes DC movies per se, the recent ones. But did you like him as Lex Luthor? Uh, I was not a fan. Yeah, but you do like Jesse Eisenberg. Obviously, you said you like him. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think he's really good. I, he, he's good at what he is. Yeah. I think he does a good job at, at, you know, what he does. Yeah. Well, there's a movie I saw at the festival called Vivarium, which is somewhat of a horror movie with Jesse Eisenberg, also with Imogen Poots, who's, I think, in the movie you saw. I would love, once you've seen Vivarium, uh, which is an American movie, I think just it, it didn't really, like, take off. I'd be curious what you say about that, because that's the only movie I've seen with Jesse Eisenberg where he's, ster- he's sort of cast against type. He's asked to be a different sort of character, but he still ends up becoming the same guy. Yeah, I'm very interested in seeing that. Well, you said there's a movie you really disliked this month. I think that's as important at what you, as what you liked. Yes. So my new least favorite movie, a film called Girls with Balls. Mm, um, that movie has Don't See written right into the name. Talk about it currently is, is sitting at a 3.9 out of 10 on IMDb, which is a great sign. I saw it on regular Netflix, but it is a French-Belgian dark comedy, comedy in very big quotation marks. It's Isn't only that a, your wheelhouse? Your wheelhouse is yeah, dark comedy. I don't think so. I usually tend to like ones that are actually funny, though. So okay. it's only 77 minutes long, which should be at least a little bit of a redeeming factor because you don't have to sit through as much of it. But it feels like it's three hours long somehow. What did it work for you? Besides the jokes not being funny and there being no narrative. Everything. The performances are excruciating. <laughs> The plot. It's about a girls' volleyball team who... Ah, sports movie. Yeah, it should be on our volleyball bracket. They're, like, going on a detour home, leaving this, like, championship game through the backwoods, and this group of hillbillies just starts hunting them. And there's... All the jokes are either homophobic or they're just, like, pee-and-poop jokes. The moment they really cemented it as my least favorite movie of the year, certainly maybe in several years, the coach of the volleyball team gets attacked by a chihuahua and he just picks the chihuahua up and like rips it in half. The effects look terrible, probably a given, but I don't know who thinks that a dog being ripped in half is, I guess that's the dark comedy aspect, but. Well, uh, Cannibal Holocaust, which you and I both saw and I think enjoyed. That movie I think was made before the advent of how you have to treat animals on screen. So I think that movie actually did what it shows it doing to animals. But then again, that movie also people thought was killing its protagonists. So yeah, I think it can get away with it. You're saying, but Girls with Balls doesn't get away with what a 70s uh, porno violent movie could do. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, the volleyball scenes in Girls with Balls were probably the best part, but that was unfortunately only about two minutes of the movie. There's a scene of these the girls are like hiding out in a mud pit and a hillbilly just comes up to the edge of the thing where they're hiding and he just starts like peeing on them. Yeah. 
as soon as you said it there. As soon as you said a hillbilly comes up, I saw where that scene was going. And yeah. I wasn't not even watching the movie. You just watch him pee on them for about a minute. At that point, I was really just thinking, you know, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, okay. Well, on that note, unless there's another movie that people really should check out or should avoid, I'm curious about Av. He did mention at the top that this month has been, like me, pretty important for him in terms of turning this year around. So what is it, Av? What did you see besides our feature film? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier I got to see Transit. It's a German film. It's directed by Petzold, and he directed a movie called Phoenix two or three years ago that was absolutely fabulous. I totally loved it, and this was just as good. It kind of riffs off Casablanca, which I had the opportunity to then go see after I saw this for the first time, which you know somehow I managed to avoid seeing Casablanca for 36 years, but it, this really inspired me to do so. It borrows you know, just narratively and thematically. It's about people stuck in transit, refugees uh, emerging from some crisis. And what this movie does that is, was just like really magical is that it takes you a while to figure out exactly what it's doing, but it, it kind of dislocates the story from time so that at certain points it feels like you're in the 1940s, but then the technology and the cars that are around makes it clear that this is happening later and it's you're kind of trying to figure out what's going on and it ends up providing this really powerful story about just these people stuck in time, stuck in transit between places. It kind of builds on itself as a story within a story within a story and just I thought it just had really powerful things to say about the nature of storytelling. In the middle of the movie, he tells a story about somebody who's waiting online to get into hell until he realizes is that the line is what is the health. And what, what a year for Joaquin Phoenix. Not only is he apparently going to be in some good movies, but someone who looks exactly like him is in an amazing movie. Yeah, no, I, th- I, I totally agree. He definitely did. Um, I, yeah, it was a little confusing at times. <laughs> there, was, there was this other line that they kept repeating in the movie a couple times about, you know, when two people part because one person gets left behind, the other person gets the transit papers to go to, you know, America or Mexico or wherever it is they're going. This, this concept of who is the first one to forget, the person who left or the person who stayed behind and, you know, who moves on with their life first. And I thought that also had like this double meaning of, who's the first to forget between the victims of these types of situations and the perpetrators is, you know, is the, the people that suffer or is the people that have the collective guilt of what, of the suffering that they caused. It was a really incredible, powerful movie. As I said, I never saw Casablanca until this time. Then I said, you know what? I got to go see Casablanca. I'll share a very brief, funny anecdote on that. I, I made plans with my wife. We both had never seen When Harry Met Sally. So my plan for a Sunday night was going to be, I'm going to watch When Harry Met Sally with my wife for the first time. And then I'm going to watch Casablanca for the first time. And anyone who's familiar with When Harry Met Sally will probably remember that there's a scene in When Harry Met Sally where they're both in bed on the phone together and they mm-hmm. watch the end of Casablanca. Mm, yeah. I'm sitting there and thinking, I avoided the end of Casablanca for my entire life. And now <laughs> 20 minutes before I'm about to go see it, they ruined the final scene of Casablanca for me. And now I know I'm going to walk into this movie knowing what happens at the end. And, you know, you can't make stuff like that up. Yeah, and, you know, Casablanca just totally holds up. It's a completely magical experience to watch. Oh, it's, it's like an all-time, all-time. Like, of an all-time list, it's on the all-time list. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. sure. No, Transit's really special. It plays upon so many different classic film types. It's just something really, really unique. It takes a movie in the 1930s about a Jewish refugee family from the Nazis in France, and it sort of redoes the story in today's times, which is so contemporary and so hard-hitting, but you're not really sure what decade you're in. It's filmed magically. I think Transit is something we'll be talking about in years to come. Um, Av, anything else besides Transit? 
give us a few more heavy hitters that you like, or uh, again, something you hate as well. Yeah, I'll just, I'll mention one more, um, The Farewell, which is getting a lot of buzz. I thought it was really good. Just like very sweet, funny, emotional. You get to really love being around this family. The basic idea of the movie is the grandmother is diagnosed with cancer and there's a custom either in this family or in the community in, in China. It, it's not exactly made clear that when an old person is dying, you don't tell them that they're dying because, you know, you want to relieve them of the, the mental anguish of them knowing that their days are numbered. And it becomes this kind of dispute between the American girl who's played by Aquafina, who is more accustomed to the American way of doing things, and the older generation who wants to do the tradition the way that they were brought up to do it. And there's kind of just this struggle between old and new, between America, you know, individualism and Chinese collectivism. But at the same time, it's just like, it's the same as every family dispute that, you know, it's just never going to be reconciled because people see things different ways. And it's just emotional and it's just filled with baggage from things from years past that all, you know, it just, everything gets tied up in it. Will, you saw Farewell as well, right? Uh, no, I'm actually planning on seeing it this Tuesday. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought you'd seen it. I mean, Av, I can tell you what I loved about Farewell is, I thought it was a great movie, is I think the scenes, as you mentioned, when the family's arguing around meals or at, or at cemeteries or wherever, or laughing and you know, some great jokes at a cemetery with the family being together. I thought the family dynamic is, and the culture, cross-cultural dynamic is the best part of it. I didn't find the emotional tension so meaningful. I didn't think the actress pulled it off. There's a scene in a makeup room uh, right before the wedding when uh, there's sort of this key emotional climax between the lead and her mom. And I, I just think the actress had enough there. It didn't work for me. And then besides that, movies sometimes can have too much music, too much music overtones. I felt this movie relied on it too much. Every other second, there was like dramatic music playing in the farewell as they were walking somewhere. And, you know, music is sort of playing with your emotions and how it's put into a movie when music is coming externally as it does in farewell. I don't know. Did that work for you? You like that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I thought it was a powerful movie. I mean, I, I think it's not quite as amazing as some people are praising it for, but I, yeah. I found it really effective. It, it really made me feel a lot of different things, you know, funny, emotional, like gut punch. But mostly you just really grow to a deep fondness for this family. Yeah, and a lot of different people could like the movie. Okay, I think it's time to go into our feature discussion. But before we do, let's get a quick word from our friends over at One Movie Punch. Hello there. Do you like movies but feel overwhelmed by the avalanche of titles available every week in the theaters and on streaming services? Do you struggle with justifying the increasing cost of movies at the theater or whether to pick up another streaming service? Well, I have a resource for you. One Movie Punch. Your movie review podcast for currently playing newly streaming classic and cult movies. One movie per day, every day. We track the theaters, streaming services, and the occasional physical release to find the best movies currently available. We watch every film, then distill it into a short three to five minute review and publish a daily podcast. And now with year two, we've gone spoiler free for all movies within the last three years and bringing on a team of reviewers with brand new perspectives and selections. Want more information? Head over to www.onemoviepunch.com to subscribe to the daily podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at One Movie Punch and Facebook at www.facebook.com slash One Movie Punch. We'll see you there. I'm going to 
turn it over to Av. I know he has a really strong passion for our feature, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's ninth movie. Tarantino, it's suffice to say, I think he's the A-list director for most American uh, moviegoers today. You know, Scorsese, I think, has been a little more absent, perhaps, um, where Tarantino has just churned out every few years. Everyone is a major event. The one thing I'll say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that what this movie did for me, and I liked it, I didn't love it, but I like it a lot, is it redeemed the year 2019. This is what I want to see. I want to see movies coming out of Hollywood with A-list talent, an A-list director backed by an A-list studio that are provoking and challenging and engaging to adult audiences and are not always so easy and have lots of questions. That's what Hollywood should be giving us, along with Endgame, which I love, and along with, you know, some of the other action movies and some of the horror movies. And the fact we don't get those enough, I think, is part of the story in this movie, uh, both the message it's sending about classic Hollywood and Hollywood in 2019. And I think, you know, it's, Tarantino has said this is his second to last movie. I think he's also sort of sending a message how I'm a little bit out of my times, perhaps, but I hope he isn't. I hope we're going to be getting movies like this uh, into the future. Uh, give us a sense, what is this movie about? Why is it so important for you? What did you love about it? Before I get into my review of the movie, I just wanted to mention something that I thought was really interesting. I just read on Twitter and that kind of goes to the point that you were just saying about how Tarantino stands out in this time in American film. So Reservoir Dogs came out the same year as Aladdin, and then his next movie, Pulp Fiction, opened the same year as Disney's The Lion King. His third movie, Jackie Brown, opened the same year as Men in Black was released. And then Inglorious Bastards came out the same year as Zombieland. His ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, opened in the year 2019, which also featured sequels and remakes of Aladdin, Lion King, Men in Black, and Zombieland. So I think that your point is absolutely true. In a state of the movie industry where everything is so focused on superhero movies and sequels and franchises, Tarantino is really one of the last remaining relics of a time when original movies were being made for mass audiences. But let's get to the movie. So first and foremost, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, what it really is, it's a love letter to Hollywood of the late 1960s. From the very first moments of this movie, Tarantino casts a spell over the audience and he transports us to a time and a place that really feels so authentic and lived in. The way he really does this is through the painstaking detail that he puts into every frame of this film that, as you watch this, just reassures you at every single moment that you're in the hands of a confident master filmmaker on the top of his game who has labored over every single shot in this film with agonizing precision. Every billboard, every cinema marquee, every song choice, every spoken word that comes through a car radio. Starring Leonardo DiCaprio as a fictional former TV Western star named Rick Dalton, and we also meet his best friend and stunt double, Cliff Booth. Rick Dalton is in the limelight of his career, his days as a lead are long gone, and the movie set where him and Booth used to make Westerns has been turned into a breeding ground for the Manson family. And it's at this very moment in his life that we meet his new next-door neighbors, none other than celebrity couple Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, portrayed in a quiet but physically vibrant performance by Margot Robbie. Polanski and Tate represent everything that Dalton's not. They're young, they're magnetic, they're interesting, and most of all, they're on the way up. If you've studied your history, you know that 1969 was really a turning point both in the history of Hollywood and also in American history at large. 
In the late 60s, the studio system in Hollywood was collapsing, which paved the way for a new generation of exciting, groundbreaking filmmakers to dominate the next decade. But at the same time, that also displaced a lot of the aging stars that had made a home in the golden age of Hollywood. And 1969 was also a turning point in American history on a grander scale. The flux of recent political assassinations, the escalation of the war in Vietnam, the election of Richard Nixon, who would eventually be removed from office, marked the beginning of a period of time where Americans would begin to lose confidence in their government and an overall loss of innocence in the American spirit. Joan Didion famously wrote that many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 1960s ended abruptly on August 9th, 1969. And I think a lot of people think that because Charlie Manson, who we see briefly in this movie, what he did because he was primarily seeking fame, he wanted to be a musician, and he co-opted the hippie lifestyle and used that to attract vulnerable young people to his murderous cult. And when word broke of the absolutely grisly murders that happened in Los Angeles that really drove home for a lot of people that there was a dark side to the counterculture of the 1960s and that it wasn't all the summer of love. What this movie does so well is taking place over three days in 1969 just really captures the spirit and the mood and the essence of that time period. And it does so in a way that is just so energetic and full of life. I absolutely adored this movie. I thought it just was so fun to watch. I enjoyed so many scenes of this movie, one after the other. I couldn't stop thinking about so many different things as I watched it out of the days since I've seen it. I absolutely love this movie. I think it is a masterpiece. It is one of Tarantino's best. Will, you've seen a lot of the Tarantino films, right? Like uh, yeah. Nine of them. Would you say, are there other directors that can compare with Tarantino in the hands? When you're watching a Tarantino film, you're like, this is a Tarantino movie, particularly by the end of it, at least you can appreciate that. How much was this for you a Tarantino film? So this really felt different than a lot of Tarantino's movies for me. I felt like it was the most thoughtful movie he's ever made. Uh, mm. I felt like the most mature movie he's ever made you know, up until the ending where it really goes off the rails. When I think Tarantino, you think the gonzo violence movie references, the way he plays with Hollywood history. And there's certainly Hollywood history. I mean, that is this movie. The violence, as you said, comes a bit late. Uh, the feet are everywhere. I think but, it was his uh, most feet heavy movie, honestly. Yeah, I felt it was very much Tarantino, but um, that's probably, you know, after the fact, once you've seen everything, and the ending is critical to that. But I would agree. I think it's his most cerebral, um, his sort of most thoughtful. I read somewhere that he said in an interview that after he saw Roma, he realized he needed to make this movie. And he said, this is wow. sort of his Roma. This is sort of his childhood, even though, you know, he wasn't uh, a Hollywood actor. This is how he saw his childhood through the eyes. And, and this is how he wanted his childhood to be in a sense, meaning, and, and you know, and America to be, you know, this is how he wishes history could have continued in a, in a sort of similar way, maybe to Inglourious Bastards. And I, I heard someone discussing this movie and they said, you can sort of, you can couple a lot of the Tarantino movies together. Um, so maybe like Django and Hateful Eight, and uh, there's a few other examples. And so I guess this one, they probably tend to pair with, um, there, there was a debate, but one person said it really should be paired with Jackie Brown as sort of his most cerebral and thoughtful movie. And, and other people and, said Inglorious Bastards, maybe. Yeah, I, I also just felt like this was by far his most deeply personal. You know, he, there's just so much of himself in this movie, not just with the references in the time period, but, you know, it's hard not to see the, the Rick Dalton character that him and Leo DiCaprio 
created together. There's, you know, some of Leo DiCaprio in that, you know, an aging star. And, you know, you have a, one of the great filmmakers of our time saying that this is his second to last movie that, you know, maybe he's feeling like the movie business has passed him. He doesn't feel as relevant. He feels like he's being squeezed out for whatever reason. I don't think so. I think that he's as relevant as ever, but, you know. I think he's, he's even more critical today than he was arguably since Reservoir Dogs and, uh, you know, his early movies that really changed the way we think of movies. Uh, what are elements you said that didn't make this movie work perfectly for you? Or are there no fault lines you can find in this? So I, the one thing that I'll say is that I've noticed a lot anecdotally between how much people had an appreciation and understanding, A, for just like this time period in general, and then specifically what they knew about the Manson family and Sharon Tate and everything that went down that night in August 1969. And that the more you kind of knew that stuff in the background, in the context, I think you had a much greater appreciation for that. And I think that you could, you could certainly make the case that he could have done a better job of just putting in a little bit more context and just kind of like giving you, spelling out a little bit more what the Mansons were about, who they were, that sort of stuff. So that, that way you kind of really could put it all together if you had no idea what, who that was. From what I've seen, there's a lot of people who are not as familiar as they needed to be to really appreciate this movie. Yeah, I think tons yeah. of people don't know who the Mansons are. Good thing in some sense that the Mansons are not as famous because they were such a negative element in American culture. I mean, I, I, I would challenge you, and I think Will picked up on this. I think the biggest fault in this movie is, in contrast to other Tarantino movies, there isn't enough of a through line. You know, in, in Glorious Bastards, in all of his movies, you know what the driving through line is. You know, we just escaped an armed robbery and one of us is dying. Or yeah. we, have to, we have to kill Hitler. Or we have to take this guy to hang him up in the nearby western town and what the F is going on in this weird tavern. There's not really a through line in this movie. And I think it's meandering. On some way you can appreciate it, but it also can lose the audience. And it, it lost me at times when I was like, I love what, I love what he's doing. I love this. There's a lot of fun scenes. I love Brad Pitt. You know, Leo's cool as well. Wow, that's Al Pacino. But like, what, what are we doing? Like, where are we going? Yeah, there's a lot of scenes just sort of feel like self-contained short films within this film that don't really add to the overall product. And really thinking about it afterward, it feels like a movie where the sum of the parts are greater than the actual whole. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. But that's why I love so many things going on in it, but I don't think as a movie fully works for me. And I'm surprised, Ab, you didn't have that challenge. Um, it did for me. I, I, I loved every scene of the movie. I was just like having a blast every time. You know, yes, they would switch to a different thing. And, it, you know, you at first didn't exactly know always what was going on and how it connected to what you just saw. But I thought it just like it absolutely came together as a cohesive whole for me by the end. I think it is his least accessible movie. Um, I mean, you really? even admitted, you said, you know, to the, you said one has to sort of know a bit more and appreciate a bit more about the late 60s and the Manson family and whatnot to fully appreciate this movie. And I think without some of that, it's a little less accessible. I mean, yeah. no, it certainly might be. And I know, you know, what, one big factor is that like, if you, if you know exact, as soon as Sharon Tate comes on screen and you know where this movie is headed, then the reality of her murder and what's going to happen to her just like looms as this dark presence oh. over the entire movie. For and, sure. And you're just like waiting for the other shoe to drop. You like, you see this beautiful young girl just like having the time of her life dancing at parties, at the Playboy Mansion, and just like living the dream Hollywood life. There's a scene in the middle of the movie where she goes to watch herself on screen at a movie. One seat, 75 cents. What if I'm in the movie? What do you mean? I mean, I'm in the movie. I'm Sharon Tate. 
and she's more watching the audience watch her. It's just, it was this incredible scene of just like movie magic that makes you feel like this is why people go to Hollywood to make movies so that they can just capture that feeling of making something that matters, making something that people like. And it's that feeling that I feel like Rick Dalton is trying to chase. He wants to be relevant again, to make art that is powerful and interesting and that affects people. And you see this young, vibrant, up and coming, soon to be movie star. And the whole time, you know what's going to happen to her. And you know that summer of 1969 and this golden age of Hollywood and the summer of love and the 60s, all of this innocent time is about to come crashing down. And these characters are walking off the cliff and they just don't know it yet. Yeah. So I think that context is so important. I mean, I imagine, you know, someone in China, which is an audience, you know, a lot of Hollywood movies these days, they're trying to make a big buck overseas. The overseas audience is so much part of the box office. And I can imagine an average film goer in China who was already ripped off by, uh, what is it, A Long Day's Journey Into Night, where they lied to them about what that movie was about, going in, not knowing American history, not appreciating the late 60s, not knowing anything about the Mansons, and being like, oh, Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, big stars, I loved uh, Kill Bill. And kind of being, what did I see? What happened? Like, why is he feeding his dog all the time? <laughs> and so in that sense, I think it's, it's not so accessible. But I agree. I think if you, if you have that context and appreciation, you can get so much out of this movie. And I'm not enough of a film buff to probably get 40% of this movie. I think there's probably a lot there. This movie is so rewatchable. Um, I will certainly give it that. Um, one thing uh, you, you referenced, but I think uh, I'd love to hear more, is you said, and Will said this as well, that there's a lot of scenes which are really special. And I'd love to hear more, maybe like, um, you know, what are your top five scenes? One I'll throw at you, which I really like that he does, is I like how Charles Manson is barely in this movie, even though he looms over it. I like how he's barely given any screen time. I'm always the kind of person who says, like, when there's a terrorist attack or whatnot, I don't love that the terrorists should get so much attention, just enough so that we're informed, but don't make them into celebrities. And Manson obviously had a whole obsession with his own celebrity. And I like how they sideline him. You know, his scene is important for that looming sense of dread. If you understand why that scene's important when he shows up briefly in the driveway. But otherwise, he's not in this. And I almost think his absence is one of my favorite scenes. I like that Tarantino made that choice. I don't know what other scenes did you really like. Uh, and Will, you too. Just to echo just that last point, I think a lot of what Tarantino is trying to reckon with in this movie is the simple fact that in our world, in real life, Charles Manson is much more famous than Sharon Tate, and she's only famous for being killed. That career that was just snuffed out of existence by these horrible monsters, and she just becomes someone who's only known for being murdered, and Charles Manson is very famous for all the horrible things that he did. And um, I would say, other than the the scene that I mentioned about where, where Sharon Tate goes to watch the movie in, in the middle of the day, um, I would say my second favorite scene in the movie was probably a scene towards the middle where Cliff uh, picks up a hitchhiker, I think on Hollywood Boulevard, and they, he goes to visit Spawn Ranch, which used to be a, a site where they would film old Westerns, him and Rick and other people would film Western TV and movies there and had become this breeding ground for the Mansons. That's where they were kind of living. You know, if you know the history, they had this whole plan. They were going to create a race war and they were going to hide out of Spawn Ranch. And once everybody else killed each other, they would emerge and, you know, conquer and take over. He goes to visit and, you know, it's unsettling and it really devolves into this like horror scene where it's just like it's the middle of the day. It's bright light and 
and you're just terrified at every second about what's about hippies to everywhere. The hippies are like zombies almost. I yeah. Like. And something that I, I didn't realize at the time, but I read about after the fact is that significant number of the hippies that are on in that scene on the Spawn Ranch is the child of a celebrity or, or an actor. And I think he, he's really trying to drive something home about kind of like that second generation of fame and what that does and the ugliness that could come with that. Not that I think he thinks that the real life children are, are bad, but kind of just this, what is, what is the natural succession of that type of lifestyle of fame and celebrity and how that imparts to the next generation? I have, I've read up on the Mansons. I've always been terrified and had heard about the Sharon Tate ever since I was a little kid. It's almost going back to what Will had said about reading horror movie synopses on Wikipedia. I used to sort of read sometimes like murder stories from uh, history. So I had known that. One of the elements I didn't know, but before this film, I did read up on and listen to that podcast you recommended, is that one of the victims of the Manson family, a side victim, was there was a stunt actor who visited Spawn Ranch where Brad Pitt's character as a stunt actor visits. There was a stunt actor who had sort of an interaction on the ranch and then he was killed during their murder spree. And knowing that as I did, I was super concerned. There was that sense of dread. I was like, oh, maybe Brad Pitt's character is the replacement. He is that stunt actor in this movie. So I don't know if you knew that going in, but to me that added a tremendous sense of concern. And the second thing I throw at you is talk about Brad Pitt, particularly in that scene and in this movie as a whole. But yeah, did you know that there was a stunt actor who was killed by the Mansons? Um, I'm not sure if I knew that, but nonetheless, I totally thought there was a good chance he wasn't leaving that ranch, either because he was going to be killed right there, or he was going to somehow get sucked into them and become part of the Manson family. I, I didn't know, but I thought this is the last time we're seeing Brad Pitt as a good guy. Wow. Yeah. I, I really, I like the total opposite opinion on that scene. I thought it just kept going on and on. Uh, I never had the feeling that Brad Pitt was in any actual danger. I don't know. I think that might have just been me, but but as Ob yeah, said, the more the more you know about the Manson story, the more you create that sense of dread. Yeah, I didn't know about the whole stuntman thing. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, and he's not famous at all. I mean, he's a V like Sheriff Tate and some of the other victims. Um, but he's just some side stunt actor that was killed. So I, I was like, oh man, Brad Pitt is done for. But ah, like I think this is Leo's best movie easily. I think this is not necessarily Brad Pitt's best movie because he doesn't get as much to do. But I think short of like Brad Pitt and Humphrey Bogart and Tom Cruise, there's not that many people that could have pulled off the Brad Pitt role in that he is just an A++ star on the screen. I've read somewhere that a lot of people went to see this movie because of the names Pitt, Tarantino, DiCaprio, etc. How much does the acting make this movie? Is this the best Leo movie we've seen? Is this the best Brad Pitt movie? I think it's really up there with his best performances. Um, I, I feel like you could really throw any of his other performances at this one, and this would really challenge it. And I feel the same about Brad Pitt's performance here. Yeah, they're, they're both phenomenal. I mean, Leo, he basically plays like, I don't know, eight, ten different characters in this movie, and, you know, albeit some of them are similar. You know, he's playing this type of cowboy, that type of cowboy. But the way he just transitions, you know, Rick Dalton is this guy who's deeply insecure with a stutter, and then he just, you know, the camera flashes and he just turns it on. And there's a scene where he's in a trailer between scenes in a, in a shoot, and he's, like, not getting his lines right. And just, like, the most vulnerable you've ever seen Leo DiCaprio. Fucking lines, embarrass yourself like that, you're goddamn people. Oh, you're drinking all night. Fucking drinking again. Eight goddamn fucking whiskey sours. Fucking bullshit. Ah! That fucking girl. You're gonna show that goddamn Jim Stacy. You're gonna show all of them on that goddamn fucking set who the fuck Rick Dalton is. All right. 
who's really phenomenal. I mean, you see this guy has just unbelievable acting chops that I think he doesn't get credit for. Yeah, but also I feel like Brad Pitt and even more so Leo, there are generations like top of the mountain A-list actors. Brad Pitt is a very good looking man. What is he, like 55? Yeah, I was kind of creeped out by the scene with him and Margaret Qualley in the car. Yeah, she has a slightly Angelina Jolie, maybe in her 20s, like look to her. And so yeah. I think, I wonder if that was even intentional, you know, Tarantino sort of, there's winks all over this movie and there's a movie of winks. So there's this scene where they don't want to allow Cliff to be the stunt double in whatever latest show that Rick is working on and somebody just drops in passing. Yeah, because everyone knows that guy killed his wife. Yeah. And so Rick immediately just calls, you know, that's bullshit that didn't happen. And it cuts to the scene on a boat where we kind of see they're fighting and he's holding this harpoon gun in his hands. And then it just cuts away and it leaves totally ambiguous. We don't know what happened. And I couldn't help but think that that's like Tarantino kind of riffing off everything that went down with Harvey Weinstein and you know you have this guy that you work with and who's your friend and there's like these rumors spreading around about him and you don't know what to believe and you want to defend your friend but kind of just like this open secret open rumor but we don't even know if it's true you know everything else we see about this guy in this movie he seems like a, a pretty upstanding guy I mean he as you mentioned you know he, there's this scene where this the underage girl and but he's a gentleman. He 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 very much turns her down. And he kind yeah, of he turns her down. Him. He's just like a, as good of a as a best friend as you can be. He's just always there for his friend. He just seems like a guy who's just like always doing the right thing and has good values. But also maybe he murdered his wife. It's it's kind of uh, it's an interesting wrinkle that you get on him in the middle of the movie. Could, could we talk a bit about the ending? Because the ending I was kind of going into and I was speaking with Alva as I was watching the movie. I was saying, oh man, you know, there's going to be some violence in this ending. And I made the mistake of forgetting for a moment that this was a Tarantino movie and Inglorious Bastards and everything else. I was like, oh man, like I don't want to see Sharon Tate and like I don't want to see that on screen. And apparently the Tate family, when they heard he was making this movie, he met with them one-on-one and then they gave him their blessings, obviously, given how the movie ends. But at first they were like, we don't want to see our family member, you know, recreated again. My question about the ending is the movie in some ways is very, very conservative. You know, it's like, oh, those dirty hippies, you know, and we tend to see hippies looking back at the 60s as these sort of left-wing flower children, symbolism, etc. And there's, you know, Leo is a fundamentally a conservative figure. And Brad Pitt's character, I think, is very conservative as well in how he holds himself and he's sort of the old school man and whatnot. And so I thought that was interesting. I'm also curious for your thoughts in that one thing in rereading about the Mansons for this movie is, I think the Mansons were white supremacists. I'll be briefly referenced this. I mean, yeah. they h- hated black people. They believed they were the super race. And so there was also something in the movie, particularly with the ending. I was like, oh, this is just Tarantino killing Nazis again. He loves that kind of stuff. So did you see it as like fundamentally a conservative message? Did you see it as somewhat of a Tarantino killing Nazis ending? Where did that take you? I mainly just saw it as like Tarantino wanting like the pleasure of watching these terrible people from history die. Yeah. You know, not really any political message. Oh, I've said this at the beginning. I think this movie is very much about America 60s to the 70s, but I don't think it's about America in 2019 and Hollywood. I, I felt it there. I was like, oh, he's like taking on white supremacists. He's oh, also yeah. Yeah, he's taking on entitled far left safe space hippies in a sense. I don't know. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's 2019. So you better have a really good reason to have a male character slam a female character's head into a telephone. Yeah. Bash her to death. So, you know, she basically has to be a Nazi or a Klansman or of, of that ilk to be able to get away with that. So, yeah. And even um, within the context of the movie, I think that that has still been bothering some people just because that character really didn't do anything. 
Um, yeah, but the Mansons are so evil. Yeah, Just, she, she was there to murder people. Well, yeah, I mean, like, knowing the context of history, um, like, what actually happened, I feel like it's a lot easier to accept that. But within, like, the movie itself, I feel like she was portrayed as sort of this more hesitant figure. But, you know, this is, like, not not super important as far as, like, my enjoyment of the movie goes. But it is something that people are talking about. Uh, Ob, is the scene before they go into the murders when they're talking in the car and there's this amazing Tarantino self-reference film? Frank Sadie, get it together. Rick Dalton played J.K. on a cowboy show in the 50s called Bounty Law. Fuck you, Katie. Sorry, I don't know the name of every fascist on TV in the 50s. I can't believe that asshole in the world was J.K. When I was a kid, I had a Bounty Law lunchbox. That was my favorite of all my lunchboxes. Dig this. We've been having our trip sessions. I've been expanding on this one idea in my head. I dig it. We all grew up watching TV, you know what I mean? And if you grew up watching TV, that means you grew up watching murder. Every show on TV that was an I Love Lucy was about murder. So, my idea is we kill the people who taught us to kill. I mean, where the fuck are we, man? We are in fucking Hollywood, man. The people, an entire generation, grew up watching kill people live here. And they live in big shit fucking luxury. I say, fuck them. I say, we cut their cops up and take them in. That's a great idea, Sadie. To me, that was like Tarantino responding to his critics who say, we love you, but you're so violent, and that's part of this sort of violence, breeding violence in our society. I, that scene is, I think, the funniest scene in the movie, arguably. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I probably, to me, it's the most memorable scene in the way that the, the bar scene in uh, Inglorious Bastards, or, you know, the way in which there's certain scenes in Tarantino movies you remember. I think, to me, it's that one. I don't know if that made your top five or your top three. Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly, that, that was a really funny scene. And, I, I, you know, as you said, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that he put the, the words of critics into the mouth of a Manson family member. Yeah. Is, is the movie ending optimistic for you, Av? By the end of it, is it uplifting? <gasps> I think the ending is mostly optimistic, and I would say I don't think I've ever been as affected by just the mere appearance of the title card at the end of a film, because what you realize at the very end of the movie is that what you're watching was a fairy tale, once upon a time in Hollywood. And obviously, the way that this film changes history and what happens to Sharon Tate is a fairy tale, and most likely what the ending means for Rick Dalton and the fact that maybe now his career is going to be resurrected is a fairy tale for him. You mentioned earlier that you thought that there was a lack of a narrative through line in this movie, but what I would say is that I think that there was more of a thematic through line. There are many scenes in this movie where you don't realize at first whether what you're watching is something that's actually happening or happening inside a movie or a television show. The scene will start and you think that you're seeing Rick Dalton and then you realize what you're seeing is a character that he's playing. And sometimes the exact opposite is happening. You think that you're seeing somebody on screen in a movie and then you realize, no, this is actually a human being talking. And 
I think through that blurring of fact and fiction and playing off fairy tale motif, what Tarantino is trying to do a little bit is wink at us and tell us that if memory is faulty, then certainly collective memory is faulty. And the nostalgia that we have for periods gone by might not be exactly correct, and we often remember things and romanticize things in a way that portrays them as better than they actually were. And although I think Tarantino obviously does have a very strong nostalgia and affection for this time period, I think we're also supposed to understand that central to what Hollywood does and what storytelling does is portray things in a way that blurs the line between fact and fiction, and it's important for us to be mindful of that. Fundamentally, the, the 60s didn't really end because Sharon Tate got murdered. The 60s ended because of real facts on the ground. Nixon's election and the increase in the war in Vietnam and the way that all the things that would happen to America in the ensuing years are probably still going to happen. And it's not going to change because a woman didn't get murdered in a home in California. But, but I think Tarantino's love affair with Hollywood and with films he shows the outsized influence, you know, that one character whose career could pick up and who could then transform a generation of young TV and movie lovers could have a transformative effect. And, you know, that's like the bitter pain of, I feel that, you know, what people describe his love letter to Hollywood, which is that character from that formulaic, uh, that Western daily, that character could have a transformative effect and it could change the life of a young uh, Quentin. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the power of film and theme in this movie and in much of Tarantino's work, and I absolutely think he strongly believes that and that shines through in this movie. At the same time, he understands and we understand that one of the things about movie narratives is that they're manufactured and a storyteller gets to make the story end however he wants and push whatever agenda he wants. And because of that, we need to be introspective of what it is that the artist is trying to tell us and make sure that we're not just taking things at face value, that there's probably a little bit of myth-making and legend and false rumors going on, and we should probably dig a little deeper to get to the truth. Will, can you give us your final take on, on this movie? You were, I think, the, the coolest of the three of us on it. Would you recommend it nonetheless as Can't Miss from 2019 so far? I would definitely recommend it. It's one of the most unique movies of the year so far. While I did have some issues with it, I think it's a must-watch for anyone who's a movie fan. Okay. We're going to, Av and I were talking offline. We want to do a once upon a time in special podcast sometime, uh, you know, obviously in the future. And what I'm referencing there, of course, is Tarantino says one of his favorite directors is Sergio Leone, the master spaghetti Western who made many movies besides that. And there's this funny joking relationship in this movie about spaghetti Westerns. And obviously it's a reference in some ways to Sergio Leone, which his famous movies with Clint Eastwood and obviously once upon a time in the West, came out in the late 60s. So they're being referenced in ways by the characters in this movie. Uh, and those are movies which today are considered all-time classics. And obviously the title of this movie is a reference to Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, and Once Upon a Time in America. What Av and I and Will may also have known is what we discovered is there's about two dozen movies that are all riffing off of Sergio Leone's movies called Once Upon a Time in Something. So in China, in the Bronx, in the Midwest, in Anatolia, in Italy. Uh, so at some point we'll come back to, I think, put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood into context with the other Once Upon a Times. Uh, what do you guys think of that idea? I, I was much more into it when it was four movies instead of 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well we'll, well, we'll find a way to only focus on the great ones. Will, have you seen Once Upon a Time in the West in America? Do you like Sergio Leone? I haven't seen it. Oh, well, you're killing me. 
was gonna say, I actually just watched it last night at, at Sammy's Pushing. Um, it's it very well made. It's extremely long. It's two hours and 45 minutes. It could, Wait, what's, which one is it? Because Once Upon uh, a Time in America is, I think, four and a half hours long. Yeah, so this is Once Upon a Time oh. in the West. It's two hours and 45 minutes. It could easily be an hour and 15 minutes. That's not to say it's not a beautiful movie. The, the music in the movie, just the sense of scene and of scope and scale is just really incredible. There are literally scenes where like someone just like looks out at a vista for like four minutes. But that's the West. I mean, the classic Western, you have to look out on vistas. Yeah. Says Leon is his director. Like Sergio Leon is the director, along with a few Japanese that sort of most inspired him. There's a line in the movie when Leo's character goes to Rome and he goes to work for what the narrator refers to as the second most successful <laughs> Western directors. And obviously he's referring to Sergio Leone as the most successful. Yeah, I mean, the big actors of the day did go off and star in Sergio Leone movies. I mean, look down the list of the people in his movies. You know, they're, they're all there. So Robert De Niro, Henry Fonda, etc. Obviously Clint Eastwood. Um, yeah, so we'll hopefully get back to that because I think... Any good discussion of Tarantino ultimately needs to talk about other movies. And uh, so, you know, we can, we can have future episodes that really dig into some of uh, Tarantino's favorites. Um, and talking any, about other movies is what we're best at. Yeah, yeah. We were gonna, we wanted to share our favorite Hollywood movies. Um, I think Av and I are going to jump into that, right, Will? Uh, yes, I'm going to jump off. Uh, but we did want to discuss Hollywood movies uh, maybe you can kind of give the context. Like, why did we decide to do a Hollywood movies favorite and not a Tarantino favorite or not a Once Upon a Time favorite? Well, so, uh, you know, if one, one thing was, yeah, I kind of thought that if we do it just like a Tarantino, first of all, there's only eight other movies to choose from. We, I feel like we would probably end up with pretty similar lists. And if not, you know, every website and every podcast is doing Tarantino rankings. You know, we all thought that to kind of focus more on the thematic resonance of this movie and kind of give us the opportunity to watch and talk about a wider array of movies that kind of are all tied to the similar theme of movies that celebrate or take down or, or just are about Hollywood and Hollywood actors and the city of Los Angeles. And, you and know, I also think it's a more honest way to frame this movie because, yes, this is a Tarantino movie, but this is a Hollywood movie. I mean, this is as Hollywood a movie as a Hollywood movie gets. And I, think it's a, I think it's a more interesting way. Plus, as you said, like, let's wait until he's made his 10 movies and then let's do a top 10. Let's not waste time doing a top nine when there's obviously one more coming. So, All right, so. I'll, be, I'll be there with you when it does. Okay, so, so maybe we're, we're going to each share our top three as we do. Uh, maybe before sharing your number three, uh, give, me a, give me an honorable mention. Give me a movie I didn't make your top three. Um, a movie that did not make my top three, which is, it was probably just on the cutting floor, was Adaptation. It is written by Charlie Kaufman, directed by Spike Jones, starring Nicolas Cage, who basically plays Charlie Kaufman going through writer's block as he's trying to write the movie Adaptation. It's just like a really clever kind of like mind-bending movie that kind of just folds in over itself several times. He kind of ends up being in the movie that he's writing about. It's like a very cool movie. Um, if you like just like the, the process of writing and what's that about. And anyone who's ever tried to write has experienced what Charlie Kaufman experiences in that movie. It's just, it's a real mind bending, very clever movie in my opinion. Is that your fourth favorite or that's just sort of one you think is really interesting? Um, it was between that and another one too. I, I think it's actually a better movie than what I was going to talk about as my number three and maybe even as my number two. I just felt like I had less to talk about in terms of its connection to Hollywood. Yeah, that, that was my number five, and I loved it as well. And it, it's interesting because my honorable mention is Barton Fink, the 1991 Coen Brothers movie, which is also about 
uh, a scriptwriter. It's also about the writing process. And the Coen brothers famously wrote it during a, a few weeks when they were having writer's block about the movie they were working on, another one of their classics. And they just took a few weeks off, ripped out Bart and Fink in like no time. And because the Coen brothers are, you know, incredible, they're able to do that. And it's a movie about a 30s era playwright who moves to Hollywood, tries to sort of make it big. But the movie is very, very surreal. I think people say it's the most surreal of a Coen Brothers movie. It's all sort of a metaphor to something about being caught between hell and the Hollywood process. And the, the narrative itself is sort of less important than the leads. And John Goodman has this incredible scene in the hotel toward the end of it. Um, it's, it's a movie that's not necessarily easy to love, but I think it's a movie that one can appreciate a lot of sort of how daring the Coen brothers are doing, particularly in 1991, uh, which is when Barton Fink came out. So that, that was my honorable mention. I'll throw out a movie I don't think people should see, and not only because of the lead, is the 1994 Swimming with Sharks, it's a Kevin Spacey movie where he plays sort of the Ari Gold, like horrible uh, Hollywood producer, heavyweight. And uh, I saw it for this list, and I thought Swimming with Sharks was just... It was hard to watch. I don't think, I had to skip forward at times. It was so bad. Um, but let's get to the ones we loved. Unless you want to give us some more that you hated. No, I'm good. Let's go. Okay. What's your number three? My number three, it will go back to 1992. And Robert Altman directed The Player, um, which I had never seen before until I watched it for this segment. And I just thought it was just absolutely delightful. I wouldn't say that it's like an amazing must-see movie, but... It's just like really fun. It, it's really satirical and just like doesn't take itself too seriously. It's like a movie that kind of really knows exactly what it's doing and strikes the right tone. And um, what, what does it tell us about Hollywood? Because I think that I think what's special about these movies is like, what is their take on the Hollywood process? Um, I think the, the fundamental take is that it's a farce. I think it views Hollywood as this completely farcical place. A lot of the scenes of the movie are just people pitching movie ideas. Tim Robbins' character, who is the, uh, either the head or the assistant head of a studio there. And just the way that they describe movies that they're pitching and just like talk about movies, I just thought was hilarious. It's kind of a psychic political thriller comedy with a heart. With a heart. And uh, not unlike Ghost meets Manchurian Candidate. Go on, go on, I'm listening. It's just like filled with movie descriptions like that. It's like, it's, you know, it's just really funny commentary on just like the way that Hollywood things are thrown together. There's a running plot line of they're trying to pitch this movie called Habeas Corpus about a person who's on death row, but they're innocent. And the screenwriters keep insisting that two things that are important to them is that A, there'll be no A-list actors in this movie, and <laughs> B, that it ends with the prisoner being executed, because the whole point of the movie is that innocent people get killed in America by the death penalty. And kind of see them as the main plot of the movie is going on. This is kind of in the background. And one of the last scenes of the movie is you see them watching the actual habeas corpus, and the two main characters are, I believe, Bruce Willis and Julia Roberts. And <laughs> at the last second of the movie, right before she's about to be executed, he swoops in and like shoots the glass and breaks her out of the gas chamber and saves her. Diehard style. And yeah, and you know, and you see the screenwriters there and they're just like, yeah, we kind of always knew that's what was going to happen. Yeah. Have you seen other Altman movies? Yes, I saw a couple episodes ago. I watched Popeye, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. But I think oh, I forgot that that was directed by Robert Altman. I'm sure he likes people to forget that as well. Let's not, yeah, let's not mention it. I think uh, The Player is the only of his, you know, real movies that I've seen at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is something obvious that we should all appreciate. Hollywood movies are so special because unlike when scriptwriters and directors and actors 
have to go and pretend to be something else, pretend to be gangsters, pretend to be cowboys, pretend to be what have you. Hollywood, they're drawing off their deep personal experience. You know, they're actors playing actors, like in the Tarantino movie. They're scriptwriters playing scriptwriters, or whatever it is. Um, you know, they're directors taking their own personal experience in Hollywood and then throwing that into the movie. And uh, that, that's what makes these movies, I think, stand out. And that's what makes some of these very special. For sure. So much personal experience. Yeah, and I, I, I think I didn't even like, quite have this realization until we, I was actually going through this process of watching all these movies about Hollywood, where I realized that we talk so much about how important representation is in movies. And then you see these movies and you're like, yeah, no shit you like making these movies. People, people like watching movies about themselves, where they feel like they are represented on screen. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like La La Land, but I remember when La La Land was getting so much buzz, it was, oh, like, of course, Hollywood people love the idea of La La Land. Wow. Coming to LA, making it big. Funny you should mention, my number two is La La Land. Ah, oh, there you go. <laughs> that was not set up. I did not know his list in advance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, La La Land. The what movie. does it say about Hollywood? I don't like La La Land so much, so I would disagree, obviously. But what does it say about Hollywood? Why is it your number two? You know, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that it has the most to say about Hollywood. It was just a movie that I thought really captured the experience of the, a lot of people who go to Hollywood with nothing but a dream and maybe they have talent, maybe they don't, but they give it all up for that one in a million chance that it could work for them. So bring on the rebels, the ripples from pebbles, the painters and poets and plays. And here's to the fools who dream. And I just thought La La Land was one of the just most technically impressive movies I've seen in a long time. There are three or four scenes in this movie that I think about all the time. The scene at the planetarium where they kind of just like drift off into the sky as they're dancing. The last like five to seven minute of the like possible alternate future where they end up together and representing what they had to sacrifice for them both to achieve their career goals. Um, the music in this movie I think is incredible. The color palette in this movie pops off the screen. I probably and remember, I think I remember the colors the most. So yeah, I agree with you. To me, it's not a great, I don't love it, but I respect it a ton. And yeah. So when we spoke of, when we spoke about sports movies, we said there's certain elements that make a, a movie a sports movie. I think there's certain elements that make a Hollywood movie a Hollywood movie besides the obvious plot and the setting. And one of those I would say is, I think a Hollywood movie has to have A-list talent. I think it, it has to have at least one star because I think that plays with our conception of this is about Hollywood. It has sort of a Brad Pitt. It has uh, Tim Robbins. I think that's part of these movies. So far, both of yours, your three and your two, have both had A-list talent. And I think A-list directors. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I, think, I mean, I think Damien Chazelle in particular is, is really, you know, on the rise. I, I've seen all three of his last three movies. I thought they were all outstanding. He's just incredibly talented at creating a setting and an atmosphere that just really transports you into the movie. Yeah, people who don't know Robert Altman should appreciate outside of Popeye, he's like one of the most celebrated directors in Hollywood history. So yes. he, he's up there as well. Um, before you do your number one, let me, I'll give you my three and my two, which are very similar. And I'm interested for your take on that. Meaning I think what they say about Hollywood is very similar. They're both, they're very different movies to watch. My number three is 2017's The Disaster Artist, James Franco's take on Tommy Wiseau's The Room. It was one of my favorite movies. It came out just a few years ago. And I think James Franklin has never been better. I think he was the director. He set up the, the script. You know, he crafted this movie. He obviously plays the lead. I think he's great in it um, on multiple facets. And again, I think it says so much about Outsider who just has this movie he, he needs to make in his own way. 
And so many just, again, the room is absolutely ridiculous. And the way this movie sort of portrays how the room was made. Scene 112, take 13, mark it, action. I did not hit her. I. Okay, okay, wine. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Take 17, action. I hit her. No. Do you want to change the line? Script is script. Script says same. You're doing great, man. But with so much heart, there's so much heart in the disaster artist. There's so much about friendship and ambition and wanting to make it in Hollywood in your own way. Um, and I recall of you liking the movie a lot because I remember you talking about it on 32 Fans. But I'm curious what you think about my number two, which is Bowfinger. It came out in 1999. It's written and stars Steve Martin, sort of in a James Franco comparison. It also has Eddie Murphy. Heather Graham, um, I think Robert Downey Jr. has a, has a nice cameo in it during his, uh, I guess, pseudo comeback, or maybe before his comeback. And Bowfinger is sort of similar to The Disaster Artist, but it's a more straight out comedy, which is, it's about Steve Martin's character, sort of like Tommy Wiseau. He's an outsider in Hollywood. He's always wanted to make a movie. And he comes together with a bunch of other losers to make a movie starring Eddie Murphy, who is the biggest like A-list talent in Hollywood at the time. Uh, in the movie's uh, fictional world, except Eddie Murphy doesn't know he's in the movie. So the running gag is they have to sort of accost Eddie Murphy, who believes in Scientology and whatnot, on the street and like film him in ways to think he's in some sort of alien blockbuster. Bowfinger is also, Steve Martin's a, a famous star. I think Bowfinger is his best movie. And, um, you know, I've seen a bunch of his. So I don't know what you think of my three and my two. I, I after the fact, was like, wow, I picked very similar movies as my, uh, my two runner-ups. Yeah, so I'll, I'll confess, I have not seen Bowfinger. It was on my list of things I wanted to see for this that I just didn't get to. As you mentioned, The Disaster Artist, I really loved. I thought it was a really funny movie that just, as you said, just full of heart. It has just a real affection and empathy for its characters. Room, as you said, it's a ridiculous movie. I've, I've actually seen it like five or six times in the last couple of years. Uh, we have a bunch of friends who are all really into it now. We're, you know, we get into things when they're cool. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that there's a, a conclusion to this movie that makes you feel like, you know what? like the guy made something and people get enjoyment out of it so say what you will like there, there are screenings in cities every Friday night where people go to watch his movie and sure they're going ironically and they're going for the punchlines and the, and the laugh lines and to throw spoons at the screen but he made something that people like and that yeah. people get, and people get enjoyment out of that and how many people can say that and I love I mean again talk about like a Hollywood movie archetype to compare it to this the big game in the sports movie the big screening of your finished movie in a Hollywood movie, which they don't all have, but some of them have. It's sort of that classic ending. And I think the disaster artist does it so well. Bowfinger also does it very nicely. Again, they're, they're sort of, they're oddly similar movies, even though they're completely different watching experiences. Absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, I'd be curious sort of our listeners, maybe when we post this, what they think of the, my disaster artist to Bowfinger and which of the two they like more. Um, I love both. I really encourage you to uh, see Bowfinger. It's just a fun time. It's, it's the kind of movie that, you know, we still make, but, uh, they're always fun when they come out. And uh, it's just fun to see Steve Martin working alongside Eddie Murphy, the sort of different eras in Hollywood. Um, what's your number one? Bring, bring, bring us home. Yeah, so my number one is a movie that is not directly Hollywood. It's more Hollywood adjacent, although it, it really focuses a lot on the process of filmmaking and, and actors and everything that goes into that. This is one of my favorite movies of all time by one of my two or three favorite filmmakers of all time, Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. I am a star. I'm a star, I'm a star, I'm a star. I am a big, bright, shining star. I absolutely adore this movie. There's a line in this movie 
where uh, Burt Reynolds says, this is the film I wanted them to remember me by, one of the porno movies that they're making in the movie. And it just reminds me so much, since we're taking this back to Tarantino, of the final line of Inglorious Bastards, where Brad Pitt looks at the camera and says, I think this just might be my masterpiece. And then it cuts to written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. And, you know, couldn't really be more on the nose with what the movie's trying to say there. We talked earlier about the long shots in movies. This has some of the most famous, iconic, iconic of those. The, yeah. the opening scene where you basically meet every character in the movie in like a five or six minute scene as the camera just whirls from table to table in a club. In a few minutes, you get to know what everyone is about. Uh, there's a scene, a, a pool party in the middle of the movie that just also, again, the camera moves all around this pool. You feel like you're at the party. The music is just so incredible in this movie and just is really drives the scenes. In, the, in that pool scene, you follow a, a girl who like, jumps into the pool and follow her underwater. And then in the background, you see Mark Wahlberg diving, jumping off the diving board. It's just, it's totally immersive. You're just totally pulled into the movie. And it's- I, think it's, I think it's appropriate that Mark Wahlberg is the lead in your favorite Hollywood movie because he's a very Hollywood type actor in terms of his career, going yeah. from Marky Mark to being in some serious movies, some action movies, some comedy movies. Um, I think he's, he's very appropriate for your number one. Yeah, and, this, and the movie kind of ties into a couple of things we talked about already in this episode. Number one, the, you know, the fundamental thing that's happening in this movie in terms of the context and the facts on the ground is that it, this is a transitional moment in the pornographic film business where videotape is starting to become more common. And because of that, it's dislocating a lot of these actors where the studios don't want to put all of this money into filming on film and making these big productions because they want to just pump out as many of these cheap videos that they can. And I've heard Paul Thomas Anderson talk a lot about that moment in film history where you didn't have to go to a movie theater to see a movie anymore and that it totally stripped away from the director, the power and the control over what the viewer sees and how he sees it. As we talked about earlier, there's no comparison when you're sitting at home and you pause to get a drink and then you pause to go to the bathroom and then you decide, hey, maybe I'll finish this movie tomorrow versus the, the director just has you at his mercy. You're sitting the in the theater, theater experience. Yeah, in the theater experience, you can't fast forward, you can't pause. If you want to see the movie, you have to sit in your seat and watch a movie that the director made for you to see. And if there's a scene that bores you, tough. You're going to wait for the scene to be over until it goes to something more interesting. So, so I, I would say with perhaps the exception of Wild Rose, which is close to my heart right now, and Parasite, which is just an incredible movie, Boogie Nights is probably the best movie. Oh, Once Upon a Time in the West is better because that's my favorite movie of all time up there. But Boogie Nights might be the best movie we've mentioned on this podcast as far as I'm concerned. But as I told you when you mentioned you like this movie as a Hollywood movie, I don't think Boogie Nights is a Hollywood movie. I think it's a movie about a, a, a similar industry as Hollywood, but a different industry, and that's the pornographic industry. The porno industry has its own location, famously in California, the San Fernando Valley. It's its own beast. It's almost a one-to-one, as you mentioned, peer and, and similar story as Hollywood. But I think that you're out of bounds. You're breaking the rules off. You're ignoring what our listeners came to hear, which is I think Boogie Nights, as grand as it is, doesn't deserve to be on a best Hollywood's movies list. It deserves to be on a best movies list, porno movie list, <laughs> best movie about the porno industry. I think, uh, I think you cheated. Fair enough. Maybe I cheated. The movie is about people making movies and, and they're in Los Angeles. And for me, that's enough to say that this is enough of a movie about Hollywood. If you want, we can knock it off, but I'm going to cheat a different way because in terms of movies about Hollywood, my number one movie about Hollywood is Once Upon a Time About Hollywood. Okay, so that's a good segue because my number one movie about Hollywood is also Once Upon a Time about Hollywood. So I think we're actually more on the same page. 
And I wasn't expecting it. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to see the Tarantino movie, and then I'm going to see a bunch of movies about Hollywood, and there'll be separate discussions. And I was mentioned briefly this earlier when we discussed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I was like, this movie is definitively Hollywood. One thing I would suggest to you, and maybe we'll just post this in the Facebook group, is if we could make a sequential ladder of films about Hollywood, where if someone sits back and watches these movies in order, they can get sort of the grand story of what's happened in Hollywood over the last 30 years. And um, I just thought of this now on the spot, so I, I don't have that list right now, and maybe, you know, something we can discuss off, offline and maybe throw it to the listeners. But, you know, say, I'm sure there's a movie that captures Hollywood in the 30s really well and Hollywood in the 50s really well. Um, but obviously, I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would take us from the 60s into the 70s. And I'm not really sure when the player is set. Is that the early 90s? But maybe, maybe that will take us, you know, into the 90s. And then a movie like The Disaster Artist, I think, would capture something about the 2010s. Um, I think there's, we, we're still waiting for an amazing movie about Hollywood that captures the last few years and maybe captures that power of how movies are now Netflix and streamed and, you know, coming from overseas and everything else. Um, but you see what I'm getting at, which is yeah. I think it'd be really fun to build this sort of historical sequence of the best Hollywood movies. I, I think Birdman did a good amount of what you were just talking about, because it, it definitely does a lot of, you know, the this guy who's a, a superhero character and he wants to do real stuff. And there are scenes in the movie that, you know, he's acting in a play, which is one type of watching. And then he's been in big budget movies. And there's a scene in the movie where he gets caught on an iPhone cam of like running around naked outside. And so, you know, yeah. So, yeah, maybe, maybe Birdman is our contemporary. It's the end of that ladder, sort of where we are right now. I would try to throw Bowfinger into it because I think it has a lot about, I mean, Steve Martin says he mined his entire career in Hollywood to sort of put Bowfinger together. Uh, and I think there's fun stuff there about actor obsession and sort of, you know, Eddie Murphy is his action star and the role of cults like Scientology in Hollywood and the, and the role of agents. But yeah, that may, be, that may be a fun thing. Let's maybe throw that into the Facebook group and ask our listeners for some feedback. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, just to, uh, to close on, on the segment and, and the feature, I'll just reiterate, you know, uh, Transit had a, a brief uh, time that it was on top as number one after beating Avengers because my favorite movie of the year is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It'll probably be my favorite movie of most years. Uh, I think it's absolutely astonishing movie. Um, I can't wait to watch it over and over and over again. I absolutely loved it. I adored it. It gave me everything that I look for when I go to see a movie. I had a ton of fun. It made me laugh. It made me think. I have, haven't stopped thinking about this movie since the day I saw it. It's been a week now. I think about it throughout the day, every day. It's just a really special movie to me. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a movie. I think the longer you let it sit on you and think about it, it gets better and better. And it's also the type of movie that like you go and you read all these articles with all like the little Easter eggs and references. And this actor who was in that scene is riffing off an actor that he played in a different movie. You know, there's that scene where Leo is digitally put into the great escape in this kind of oh, doors type that's such thing. A fun scene. Steve McQueen who appears earlier in the movie and you're, you're meant to think, okay, well, if, if Leo had gotten that role, then maybe he would have been at the playboy mansion with Sharon Tate. And you know, all of, you know, it just kind of really takes you down this path. That's really fun to think about. And it's just incredible movie magic. Yeah. So uh, I can't wait to see The Parasite, which was the standout movie, though not my favorite, of the Jerusalem Film Festival, because I think it will it'll be up there and go toe to toe with Endgame, with Transit, you know, with some of your favorites. Um, my classic for Classics Corner was I was so inspired and so amazed by Parasite that I went back to see the movie that Will referenced earlier, which is the same director's top movie he's probably made in the past, 2006, The Host, which is this Korean language movie as well. 
directed, of course, by Bong Joon-ho. And it's a monster movie. It's a monster movie with a lot of family dynamic and a lot of links at the screen and whatnot. Will said he liked it a lot. It's critically loved by many as well. I'll be frank, I did not like it. I would not recommend it. And it was important for me to see. It has certain parallels to The Parasite, but I think Parasite, you can really see how a director, what is it, 13 years on, has gone way forward with his career. I mean, everything that is good about The Host is a thousand times better in Parasite. And the stuff that's bad in The Host, he left behind. And so to me, it was a really incredible way to see how a director has sort of moved forward in his career. And I think that also plays into Tarantino, which is Tarantino says that after he saw Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, that he saw that movie and he was like, wow, I have to up my game. I have to make better movies because this is the quality of movie that I also want to make. And then he went out and I think he made Glorious Bastards, etc. You know, he felt he had sort of been throwing it in. And so to see how a director grows from movie to movie is so much of the enjoyment with Tarantino. And I think once you see Parasite, uh, you'll appreciate that as well, particularly if you've seen Snowpiercer or any of his previous movies. Yeah. Um, what's, your, what's your classics corner? My classic corner is Rear Window, which- this A is real my, classic. Yeah, a real classic. I, I had some heavy hitters that I watched this month. Uh, I, I watched a lot of classics. I, as I mentioned, I watched Casablanca. I watched When Harry Met Sally. I saw Once Upon a Time in the West. I saw The Graduate, which I've never seen before. I watched a lot of you know really classic movies, but I thought that this was- the best of them and I thought also the most interesting to talk about. This is the first movie I've seen of Alfred Hitchcock's work, which also makes it really wow. exciting for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see more. I've just never gotten to it. Av, Av, you're putting your film historian of... I know, I know, I know. I, I have a lot of... Credibility on the line. Yeah, I have a lot of blind spots before 1990. I know, it's a problem. I'm working on it, though. I'm working on it. Um, wow. I, I, I just told you five movies that I saw from, you know... Yeah, I give you classic. credit. Yeah. I give us credit as well. I think Classics Corner is... is yes. This is it's transforming Obstinensky. That's right. This, it's really pushing me to, to finally go see all the movies that I've promised myself over the years I'm going to see. So Rear Window, as I said, it's, it's an absolute masterpiece. A lot of times these classics don't quite hold up, but every frame in this movie is just so impeccably made. It takes place in this like, apartment complex with a courtyard. And, you know, it's cliche to say, but, you know, he probably invented that this with this movie where the setting becomes like a character in the movie where like, you just like, you know what to expect, what's going to be in different places in this courtyard over the course of the movie. One thing that was funny is that there's actually an episode of the Simpsons where they parody rear window and I don't, without spoiling the end of rear window in case anyone hasn't seen it, let's just say that Simpsons episode totally subverted my expectations of, of what to expect. Um, but, but I think what is really proves what a brilliant, powerful movie this is, is that it taps into something so fundamental in the human condition, this like voyeuristic nature that we have to pay attention to what other people are doing and to be suspicious of them that I don't know what, what was said about this movie when it first came out, but all I kept thinking about was if this movie came out in 2001 or 2002 during the, the height of the war on terror, this, it would be perceived as a movie about the war on terror and the if you see something, say something. And if this movie came out in 2008, it would be viewed as a movie about social media and the way that we're all looking to see what other people are up to and following other people on Facebook and Twitter and what they're up to and all that. And I think if the movie came out now, especially because he's a journalist, a photographer, it would be viewed as a movie about the media and fake news and rushing to judgment before you get the full story. And I just think that the fact that 
you know, there's so many ways in which that this manifests itself in, in real life throughout the years just proves what a powerful fundamental idea this movie taps into. But also remember, I mean, the movie came out in 1954 and you had the Red Scare and you had people turning in their neighbors and you had people thinking about communist society where, you know, the government is breathing down your neck. So, yeah, I think then it was as topical as it is today. And uh, yeah, I mean... I think Hitchcock is different than, say, Tarantino in that. Because, you know, one of the things to say about Tarantino always is, like, every one of his movies is an event. Every one of his movies is going to be incredible in some way. And Hitchcock easily has a top ten, or let's say for Tarantino's sake, a top nine of incredible movies. But the difference is Hitchcock worked in an era where you had to churn out a movie a year. Right. So I've seen about probably nine Hitchcock movies, all of which I would recommend to anyone. But I, he probably has made about 50 movies. And so I imagine if you go too deep into Hitchcock classics, you'll wear out your welcome at some point. But yeah, yeah you, you, have, you have a bunch of great ones. Yeah, and one last thing I'll end on just to tie back to, again, something we talked about before. I thought process that I had while I was watching this movie was, you know, I think I might be watching and talking about The Room too much where I'm watching The Rear Window and the main thing I keep waiting for is for Jimmy Stewart to say to Grace Kelly, wow, you look so sexy, Lisa. <laughs> yeah well you know look give him credit Tommy Rizzo was uh, a Tarantino-esque auteur of Hollywood yeah, classics dialogue, he, dialogue that's just indelible in the mind exactly exactly uh, we're gonna have you back soon because uh, we're all getting together joined by Entertainment Today's I think lead movie critic to discuss the best golf and tennis movies of all time that's coming up a bit later this month and uh, yeah, I can't wait to see where movies take us for the rest of this year because I'm really inspired after July. They really, I think, turn the corner. All right, sounds great. Can't wait. Okay, yeah, speak to you soon. Enjoy. All right, bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.